Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you're a guest, let me catch you up to speed. Two weeks ago, we started a seven-week series called The Heart Beneath Money. The reason it's entitled that, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is every time the religious elite are trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could accuse him of to, to kill him, they sometimes talking about religious law, sometimes this, sometimes that. Well, sometimes it's money. And every time someone tries to get Jesus Christ to talk about money, within a sentence or a sentence and a half, he ends up talking about the human heart. Over and over again. Every time, actually. So even the thickest among us should be able to pick up on that pattern, right? Every single time. is like a child. I'm trying to talk to you about the chore that you did or did not do. And invariably, within a sentence, you're talking about your sister. Okay, no, parents aren't with me. I did that. I'll, confession time, anybody do that? My childhood was marked by blaming my sister. Well, she didn't do her chore either. Jesus is frustrating to people. He's frustrating. They want to hear his take on the political hot-button issue related to taxes paid to Caesar or whatever else related to money. Or, uh, Jesus, tell my brother to split my father's inheritance with me. Financial issues. And he always says, mm, yeah, so about your heart. It looks to me like you love money. It looks to me like you're greedy for money. It looks to me like your money is more important than your relationship with your brother and my heart hurts for you. Is that a pastoral heart or what? That is Jesus loving us enough to tell us the truth. Oh, you think you have a financial issue, but oh, if you, if you could just lower this a notch, maybe honoring God and loving your brother are far more important. Oh, man. Today's sermon, I'm entitling three ways to, three steps to better sleep. Um, our, uh, a Christian martyr, about 70, almost 70 years ago now, Jim Elliott, said he is no fool to, who gives up what he cannot, I'm sorry, who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Um, we're going to see, particularly in today's text, that treating money like I can put it in the hearse with me and take it when I die is just kind of silly, right? Uh, preachers have said for a long time now that you never see a U-Haul trailer attached to the back of a hearse, okay? You're not going to take it with you. So let's talk about behaviors now that will allow me to... We're really talking about, do I find my security and my rest in money, or do I find it in a loving father, okay? And for those of you that I've uh, talked with and asked for prayer, and, and we're in a disciple group together, you know this is really rich. This sermon is for me. This sermon is for my soul, and you guys are just along for the ride. So you guys don't sin with trusting money and trusting the provision, you know, but instead of trusting God. You don't struggle with that, but I do. So the Lord and I are going to have a little sermon up here. And that's how we're going to do this, okay? Because my own flesh, my own sins, I need to hear this today. All right? Read with me. 
page 865 again, if you've got the hardback. Verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. Someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Some of your translations are going to say covetousness. Ninth commandment in play here. Life is not measured by how much you own. Can we stop there for a second? Raise your hand if you've lived your entire life in a culture that does not believe that. Okay, let's just start. Let's just look at our starting point. Our culture, our, our, the home that we grow up in, what's on television, what's in movies, what's in music, what everybody thinks and believes, that's where our starting point And then Jesus rudely interrupts our life at some point, changes our heart, and now we're a Christian, we're trying to follow him. But he tells us everything we've known is backwards and upside down. That's the Christian life. And we keep getting upset because every time we open this book, he's poking and prodding at yet another thing that I thought was already established, and I didn't have to worry about it, I didn't have to think about it, I could check my brain at the door, and yet another thing he's telling me is backwards. There's more to life than just what you own. Does that give freedom or what? That means the rat race of I can feel like I'm a success when I earn a certain dollar amount. I can feel like I'm a success when I achieve a certain thing with my education or or moving up the ladder at work or my retirement. There's a certain number that I want... None of those things define you. Actually, they might, but that's your heart's choice. They should not define you. My worth is not my income. My worth is not my 401k. I don't know if you guys have paid attention the last three weeks. If your personal value, if what you were as a human being was tied to your 401k, then one day you're wonderful, and then the next day, you're awful. And then the next day, you're wonderful. Have you seen that the last couple of weeks? Okay. If you're oblivious, you're blessed. Just don't even pay attention, right? Us, us young bucks, we don't care about volatility. But I could imagine if I was 65, I would care a lot, right? My, my Roth IRA. If I find my identity in what my pay stub says, in what my Roth IRA says, heck, what my father-in-law thinks of me, what my father says about me, even my wife's comments related to money. She's super encouraging, so I'm not worried about her. But any way that I can find money as an identity, that's a problem. That was for free. I'm, just, I'm trying to read the text here, and Greg keeps interrupting. So, life is not measured by how much you own. Verse 16. Then he told them a story. So, you've been around church for a while, you know it's, if Jesus just disagreed with you, he already rebuked you, but now it's going up a notch when he starts to tell a story, right? He has to illustrate how wrong you are, okay? So, in Technicolor, here we go. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Stop. Jesus is a Bible teacher first, but he's definitely a comedian second. Who knows the ancient Greek, uh, Greek culture? Who knows the ancient saying that this man is partially quoting? Who's, who's ever heard the full quote? Do you guys know what he's quoting? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Okay? We've done this again. It's called YOLO. You only live once. Have fun now. Who knows what's going to happen next? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus doesn't say that part. You know why? This guy doesn't survive until tomorrow. He's dying tonight. That's the point. Listen to this rebuke. But God said to him, You fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you worked for? You, make all, you go to this extravagant effort of building bigger barns so that you can keep something that is far more than what you need. How foolish. You, let's be honest. Let's see where generosity is in play here. You refused to even think of giving your excess to other people who are in need. But once you're dead, who's going to have it? Who eats the wheat when you're dead? Right? The wheat is going to somebody else no matter what. I kill you in your sleep tonight and the wheat goes to somebody else or you could have just been generous. Because it's not your wheat. If you were here two weeks ago. It's not yours. You and I have nothing. Actually, it's better than that. We who love Jesus Christ, we have the same inheritance that our brothers, the Levites, had. Where they did not have land, they had God. I am yours, and you are mine. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Holy Spirit, teach us the Bible today that we might rightly interact with the Son and give praise to the Father. Amen. First blank for you note takers, grab your pens. You'll sleep better when you steward God's money God's way instead of hoarding it. You'll sleep better when you steward money God's way. It's God's money. Covered that two weeks ago if you're new. It's not yours in the first place. And God's rebuke to this man is weird. See, you think you own all that grain, but if I kill you tonight, now who owns it? Huh. That's really an ownership. That's a generosity conversation. That's an ownership conversation. It's really hard to claim that you own something when you're dead. When you're alive, it's easy to make claims. You're dead, very hard, right? If you want greater joy, 
in obedience to God in the area of money. Do it his way, because it's his anyway. And I say this, these are all commands to Christians. If you're exploring faith, I want you to see this entire sermon. I want you to investigate what the Christian relationship with money is supposed to be. This is a part of counting the cost, going, what is it going to cost me to follow Jesus? And the irony of this series is as I show you that money can't be the center of your heart anymore, the irony is you're actually going to slowly see by God's grace that that's a blessing. Money's not going to have your heart anymore. Money doesn't have to be the center of your existence or your decision making or what keeps you up at night. I'm actually preaching deliverance. But when we're a slave to money, we can't see it that way. We're like, somebody wants me to give my money away? Yeah, yeah. As an exercise of proving that it doesn't own you anymore. Absolutely, I want you to give it away. Brothers and sisters, if you're not generous when you make $30,000 a year, you know you won't be when you make seventy, right? Did you know that? Yeah, Dennis will help me preach. This is directly addressing a lie, and this might be more geared toward young people. Um, when you're in high school and you get your first job and you're flipping burgers for minimum wage or whatever, um, first of all, I should, I just, let me just say, you should have gone to In-N-Out because you can flip burgers for much higher than minimum wage. Um, just put that out there. It is so easy... And we all know what that first crisis is, right? We've done the math. We know what our wage was. We know how many hours we worked. We come in. And that check doesn't have the dollar amount on it that I thought it was going to have. Wait a minute. Right? What happened, by the way? What happened? Oh, see, you guys gave the American answer. I'm going to give the biblical answer. You know what happened? First freaking fruits. The federal government understands better than the church what first fruits are. The first and the best come to me so fast you don't even see it on your pay stub. That is how Christians should behave with their money. I get a paycheck and I want to be generous toward God so fast. It's who I am. It is my privilege to give. If I don't figure that out when I'm 16 and I have my first job, I'm I'm going to be going, oh, well, later when I'm older I'll have money and I'll, I'll be generous then. Because I'm just, I'm, just I'm just a high school student. And then you go to college. Insert chuckle here. Where they try to bury you in debt. Hey, let's start off your adult life by crushing you. Sign here. And then you get out of college. You're like, okay, I'm an adult now. Is now when I'm supposed to be generous? Well, I've got all these college loans. Uh, and I've got, I have to pay rent now. And I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And then a little while later, well, I've, uh, I've got kids now, a wife and kids. I, I Later on, my kids are going to be going to college soon. Oh my gosh, I, I can't afford to be generous. You know, what's going on, right? And then your kids, if they go to college, all of that, if you didn't personally borrow money so that you're in debt for another life cycle to pay for them to go to college, maybe you've made it. Maybe you're in late, your late 50s and your kids have gone through college and you're doing okay now. Let me tell you why you're not going to be generous now. You're going to blow the money spending it on yourself because you now have 55, 60, 65 years of practice at not being generous. You cannot train yourself for 30 years in one direction and not see fruit from it. I'm sorry. 
Doesn't mean you cannot change. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit will not work in you. But we are training ourselves. So when I say this, I, I'm really, I'm probably pleading with, with children and high schoolers and college students more than anybody else. Do not wait. If right now to take $5 and put it in that plate, if right now to sponsor one of the children through Horizon International, do it now because you are building spiritual things inside your soul. Okay? Can I, can I get a testimony? This is a, this is a safe place. We love each other here. Anybody here really, really wish you could go back to your 20-year-old self and preach that? Anybody wish their 20-year-old self would, would embrace that? Yeah. Okay. If you love Jesus, I need to ask you a question. What do you do when money falls from heaven? You get in the check in the mail, 150 bucks. You look at it, you think about, oh yeah, I forgot about that, whatever. Just some random little thing. What do you do with it? Unexpected income. Can we agree that what we do with a windfall depends on the dollar amount, right? If you find a $5 bill down in your car, in between the seat and the center console, you go, ooh, and you may or may not turn that into a chocolate shake at in and out, right? It's just five bucks. You don't like, oh, this didn't move the needle on our budget, okay? But if $200 comes in, you're like, hey, I could pay a bill with that. Hey, that's something, right? If there's a $2,500 windfall, depending on where you're at, you probably cry. You're just so grateful. $2,500, that's a big deal, Right? And there's a certain size check where you go, oh, I can finally tell my boss what I really think. (laughs) That check has a lot of zeros behind it, right? So to ask, what's your plan for your windfall? It really depends on what size of windfall are we talking about. And, And I hope that one day I get the chance to prove it, but I've been really blessed the last 20 months. I'm confident if I won the lottery today, the lottery that I'm not playing... If you threw $25 million at me, I genuinely believe that, I mean, it would be nice to buy a house, but I'm not going and talking to the elders and like, this is what I really think of you elders. You guys are this and you guys are that and storm off in a huff to go do what I really wanted to do. I have it made. Just so, I mean, yeah, I would not trade my life with any of you. I would not trade my life with any wealthy person that you see, you know, famous and blah, blah, blah. Because God is gracious to me. What changes would you make? If a million dollar check comes in, what changes would you make? What if it's a hundred bucks? When a hundred dollars shows up, what do you do? Twenty dollars shows up, what do you do? Christian, what is your generosity plan? If you don't have one, right? To fail to plan is to plan to fail. What is your generosity plan for your next pay raise? What's your generosity plan for your next windfall? Dave Ramsey says it this way. 
Work, as a Christian, work on your standard of giving, not to increase your standard of living. The the Western capitalistic culture would always have you, hey, moving on up, moving on up, awesome, you got this, you can move to this neighborhood, this uh, brand of vehicle, whatever. No one's ever, ever asking the question, what do I need? I think it's super, super cool. Our, our brother, John Piper, who's written over 50 books, he had to, after a little while, he had to put it into his contracts of his book sales that all of the money from whoever bought the book was going to go to Bethlehem Seminary because he said, I'm going to get too much money and this is going to tempt my heart toward other things. Noel and I, he and his wife and his kids, he's like, we don't need more. And I love that a guy who, he could be worth over $4 million today if he had wanted to be that he, he drives like a four-year-old Toyota. If you love Jesus, I hope that resonates in your heart as a beautiful thing. At some point, you see your income going so high and you see it rightly as a threat to your love for God. And you find a way to just make that money go away and you drive a four-year-old Toyota. There's, there's not, like the car gets me to where I need to go. It's okay. Do you know what happens if you do not plan for your next windfall? ARCF, do you know? That's what happens. Okay. You will sleep, you'll get that joke later. You will sleep better when you choose to trust your elders with God's money. Note takers, next point. You'll sleep better when you choose to trust your elders with God's money. Do you know that? I know this is super... um, culturally backwards, even for a lot of Christians. The 20th century has been marked by this senior pastor model of leadership where we basically take the lead guy and we treat him like the CEO. If he does something super bad, then the board fires him, right? But everything rises and falls on this one person. The only problem is that's from the business world. That's nowhere in the Bible. It's just not there. Okay? A group of godly men who are equal to each other They are the ones that are going to look for wolves. They are the ones that are going to look for green grass and still water and put oil on your head. And the biblical model is that we take our gifts and offerings. The elders were, for a long time, kind of sidestepped. They were still sitting at the city gate, but the Levites ran the ministry. You brought the money to the Levites, and they, you'd bring a lamb, and they would help show you how to rightly interact with God, how to handle a sacrifice, that, Le- that Le- Levite ministry of you bring the lamb and I tell you how to do this right so that your, your sins are confessed and forgiven, that ministry is still going on, but the lamb is Jesus Christ. So the Levitical ministry is you come to me after I convince you that you're a sinner and you say, Acts 4, what must we do to be saved? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And so the Levitical ministry now is pastors and staff, elders, teaching you how to rightly relate with Jesus so that his blood washes your sin away. How do you rightly relate to that blood? How how are you transformed by it the rest of your life, right? Let's journey through this real quick with elders because I know this is new for some of you. Listen to this. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Here's the part that I want to point out. Their work is to watch over your souls. 
Does that sound like a big job or a small one? If we talked about this text more, I don't know if we could get people's hands to go up when we say, hey, we'd like you to be an elder. Like, that's a big deal. Here's why I'm pointing this out. By being an active, faithful member to ARCF, you are sitting under Bible teaching, which is totally subject to the elders. They, could, they have that, uh, what's that, cane, that crook. They can yank me at any time. If I say something that is not biblical, I'm accountable to them, right? If I dodge big, important topics, the months go by, the months go by, the months go by, and I'm not addressing something that's really important in the church. Like, I'm accountable to the elders. Whoever's in this pulpit is accountable to the elders. Okay? It's very necessary because absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? We, the elder body, are looking after your souls. So, brothers and sisters, how small a thing is it to take our money and trust the elders with something as small as money? And I am not talking about some blind trust. As a nonprofit, our numbers are public. We all talk through the budget once a year. We approve what the elders set forward. Like, all the staff turn in receipts for what they spent. Like, there's, there's nothing hidden. But when we take our gifts and we put it in this bucket, we are releasing, we are choosing to trust the delegated authority of the elders and the staff under them to say, I am trusting this body of godly men with how they are going to glorify God through God's money. Like, I let go of it. Okay? And, um... My eyes are skimming. Is Tony here? My eyes are... There you are, Tony. So, Tony and I had a conversation a few weeks... uh, A couple months ago back now. I realized... I said something that I don't think it landed right. I talked about designated giving a couple of months ago. Then Tony and I talked afterwards. The thing is... Those of you who really love Jesus and carefully serve him and give you're the ones with the sensitivity of spirit to make sure that you know the difference between above and beyond offering and regular gifts that come into the church you guys have the maturity for that um i was talking to people that don't i I was trying to make a comment look and and i'm there's no judgment i just know that the church doesn't do a good job of talking about money that often if we get excited about some project that the elders were not a part of that, but it's, it seems like a cool thing, and we give our money to that, and we say, well, that's my tithe, that's my giving. Actually, you know what really happens? So, not, not enough money comes in for the month. It's actually there, bottom right. And the money was there. We had the money. We just gave a little bit of it to other things. Even if those were good things. These are the dollars that are actually laid at the elders' feet. We're going to get to that text in a minute. These dollars are a statement of trust. Okay? It's not that the side project is bad. There's nothing bad about the side project. I need you to understand that the side project does not take care of the families whose staff are here. You know how half, half of what goes into that bucket goes to staff salaries? And again, I'll call it the real estate you know, fund. If you guys don't want me selling real estate 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, you'd rather me work on the sermons, 
That, that's, that's why we pay our staff. We want them. What, they're not better than the rest of us. It's just that what we believe that they are capable of, what we believe they're called to do, we want them to spend some of their time doing just that. And so we compensate them, which is a very biblical thing. We want them to spend their time on that. I cannot, brothers and sisters, I cannot pay our staff with money that you give to a side project. I just can't do it. It's literally not been put in the elders' hands for us to then turn around and take care of our staff. If you can trust the elders with your soul, and you're doing that by being here, you're trusting your children and grandchildren's soul to us in what we teach them there in the Pringle Building. How small a thing should it be to trust us with money? It must be a small thing. If you're in the hardback Black Bible, turn to page 794. Everybody else, please go to Malachi 3. We're going to spend just a few moments here. Malachi 3. Everybody's heard Malachi 3.10. If they've been in church for a while, it's the standard giving text. Hey, bring the whole tithe in and things will go great. And we sit there cynically if you're like me and we're like, well, that's real convenient, Pastor. Tell us to give money so that, you know, you get paid and whatever else. But I want to show you how crazy it is that we don't teach the verses right before and right after. Oh boy. Let's go just a couple verses before the famous one. Let's start at verse 8 and listen to God's rebuke of God's people. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. Some of your translations, they use the word rob. Stole from. It's like financially cheated. But you ask, what do you mean? Why did, how, when did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. This is the happy part that everybody puts on a coffee cup. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. The reason we like verse 10 is because we get to tell the people, the the pastors get to tell the people in the church about God's desire to bless you. And that's not wrong. That is totally true. That is totally fine. But when it gets lifted from its context, it sounds like God's blessings are only financial There have been a lot of generous people in 2,000 years of church history that had their head chopped off for the gospel. So we have to figure that one out. Actually, it's going to be a little clearer if we just listen to all of what God is saying through Malachi. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So before and after the good verses are the dark verses. He said, you are under a curse, the whole nation. You have all cheated me and you're under a curse. So when God says, I want to bless you, he's not saying to a wealthy American in the 21st century, hey, every shiny thing that the commercials have told your heart to desire, I'm fixing, I told you I lived in Texas for a couple years. I'm fixing to give you everything that your wicked heart wants. If you would just start giving 10% to the church, I'll give you the things that you want. 
That is not what he is saying. He's talking to a people who are actively, currently cursed, and the ground will not produce food for them. So I need you to imagine the Great Depression times three. Okay? During the Great Depression, 75% of us still had a job. You ever think of that? When they talk about a 25% unemployment rate? Three out of four adults still went to work every day during the Depression. Imagine a culture where all the adults are directly or indirectly farmers and the ground produces nothing. And then God shows up and says, I caused it. Stop stealing from me. I can steal from you. Not your cute fluffy Jesus, is it? You see, the Lord, Proverbs 3, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and his people start loving money and stuff. And so he says, I'm going to take your stuff away. He is saying to God's people, if you want this tough discipline to end, obey me. That's what he's saying. There's a curse right before these verses. If you want the curse to be lifted, obey me. I told you back in Deuteronomy, we reiterated in Deuteronomy what I said in Exodus and Leviticus, I will always throw more kerosene onto the good things while you obey me. I will fan that into flame. The blessings will just be way beyond what you can handle. But don't you worry, I love you. When you disobey, I also have a paddle. If you want the curse ended, obey. And the reason Americans, the reason we don't care a rat's rear end about giving to God is we don't feel a curse. I'm doing fine. What are you talking about? So Brother C.S. Lewis said, be careful of thinking that you're under God's judgment because things are bad. Sometimes you're happy and wealthy and everything's going right at work because he has tried over and over to get through to you and he just let go. Just stopped talking to you. Fine. Do it your way. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let me catch up guests. Um, in the early church, uh, Jesus had risen into heaven just a few weeks early. In the early church, um, a man and his wife sold some land, kept some of the money for themselves, which they had every right to do. That's fine. Gave the rest, uh, put it at the elders' feet, gave it to them to, to be generous or whatever. But the problem was that they lied to the elders and they said, well, this is the whole amount. <coughs> Excuse me. So it wasn't that they didn't have the right to keep some, it's just that they lied. And Peter says, you've not lied to us, you've lied to God. Whoa. And Ananias and Sapphira in two separate altercations, one and then the other, God kills them on the spot. Do you know that God has the right to kill you at any point? If it puts the proper fear and respect throughout the church, he can do that? Well, he did it that day. And right before, as if to set it up, because Luke is smart, the writer of the book, he has this quick little verse about Barnabas. This is right before the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, son of encouragement, sold a field and laid the money at the feet of the elders. Luke is contrasting. Do you see how short a story that is? It's one verse, maybe two verses. Somebody, when we obey God, 
There's not a lot of drama. It doesn't turn into a half of a chapter long story. All the drama comes from our disobedience. Barnabas gets this tiny little honorable mention because he does, he sold a field, gave the money to be generous, and then he went on with his day. And that's put in juxtaposition against this couple that decides to lie to God. Now, I say that to, to point out, to put the money at the feet of the elders, was, was it like we're entrusting it to you. Some of you have read maybe many times that when Stephen is stoned to death, the people who want to have the room for their arm to swing, they take off their outer cloak and they lay it at the feet of Saul. Okay? It's an entrusting. Watch my coat, I need to kill a heretic. Okay? It's trust. Brothers and sisters, our elder, our administrative elder meeting is a public meeting. And I want to invite you to come to it. At least, yeah, put it in your calendar if you need to. I know that trust comes through relationship and trust comes through access. And some of us might have been in a bad church situation in the past where everything happened in secret meetings off to the side and, and the church family just found out later and I understand, I've lived through that myself. I understand the fear. But by God's grace, here at ARCF, we don't have secret meetings. We're in the exact same place. We're in the lighthouse room. Same bat time, same bat channel. And I, wanna, I want you to, to commit that to memory. It may not be every month that you necessarily feel like showing up, but you're always invited you're always invited. All right. Last, you'll sleep better when you give to God first. And I'm going to try to blast through this. I'm going long. I knew I would. You'll sleep better when you give to God first. And we're going to talk very quick, roughshod through biblical first fruits. Proverbs 3 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the best part of everything you produce. <clears throat> Isn't that interesting? Your wealth, the money you already have. And your income. Both. Then he will fill your barns with grain. Your vats will overflow with good wine. Now again, it's called the book of Proverbs. It's not called the book of promises. If they were promises, it would be called the book of promises. A proverb is a wise saying, something that is generally true. So do not beat God over the head with this. If you are faithful with your giving and you experience a job loss, God did not betray you, okay? The book of Proverbs also says a wicked man digs a pit and he himself falls into it. Does that always happen? No. Sometimes bad guys get away with stuff. He's just saying generally, here are some wise sayings. You'll gain wisdom if you put these things into your heart, okay? Generally speaking, it is God's desire to bless you. That does not mean in his sovereignty that there are not dark nights of the soul along the way. Okay? We have a 66-book Bible. All of it speaks into our finances. You don't just rip out one. Okay? Guys, first fruits, it's a principle, not a rule of obligation. It's a principle not a rule of obligation, and I'm about to prove it. 
And in your notes, you'll notice a large number of verses there. I put that in there. I want to prove to you that first fruits is all throughout the Bible and it's necessary and we need to talk about it more. In fact, the reason you guys hear so little from me about tithing is that Jesus and Paul don't talk much about tithing. They use it, if anything, as a small launch pad on the way to bigger things. Like, hey, how about you seek the whole kingdom and his righteousness? Or, hey, you, you've, you've done the tithe really part, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice. He's not dismantling the tithe and getting away from it. He's just saying that's really basic. How about justice and mercy and the real weighty matters of the law? Paul seems to do the same thing. Paul in no way tears down the tithe, but he also doesn't park on it for very long. He just doesn't. Paul and Jesus are interested in taking Christians and getting us to live out the generosity of the Father giving the Son. Radical generosity is what is talked about throughout the New Testament. First fruits are also talked about through the New Testament. Let me talk to you about the, the linchpin. Here's what matters most. Are you ready? Jesus is the priest and the first fruits offering. So let me explain it a tiny bit. Back in Levitical law, the, the first fruits offering was by God said, this is the day of the year you're going to celebrate. This is what you're going to do. This is going to, and really fine flour would be brought and the priest would take a, a portion of it and would toss it into the air uh, above the altar on a certain day. And this little piece, it was an offering before the Lord. This little piece was representative of his ownership over the whole. God, you own all of it, and so I can give you a little bit of it. It's no big deal. A little bit thrown to God. Okay? And 1 Corinthians 15, 20 calls Jesus the firstborn. I'm sorry, the, the first fruits of the resurrection. So that, that Levitical law said that on the first day of the week after the Sabbath, after the Passover is when the first fruits is supposed to happen. Uh, if you guys recall, Jesus was betrayed on Passover. When was the first day after Sabbath? Sunday. Jesus was resurrected on first fruits. Okay? So what was tossed into the, like, Jesus comes up out of a grave, the first of a greater whole. Right? Okay? So God owns all of it. He owns the entire church, just the head of the church resurrected that day. The rest of the church will be resurrected one day. Okay? So if, you, if, you, if I didn't convince you two weeks ago that he owns it all, okay? So the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of this law means that Christians are in no way sinning by not grounding flour on a particular day in April and throwing it into there. We don't need to. It might be kind of cool to try it one day, but we do not have to. It was a symbol of something to come. It was, and, and when Jesus did that, he fulfilled it in himself. Okay? But the reason I said, let me go back a slide, the reason I said it's a beautiful principle, not a rule of obligation, there's nothing in the law that's going to condemn you about it, but the principle is really clear all throughout Scripture. How awesome is it if the people of God really exhibited their love for God and others by just being generous first, right off the bat? What if that was our heart? All right, if you're a guest who's exploring faith, here's my, question, here's my comment for you. I need you to know that there's no amount of money that can reconcile you to your creator. And I know it sounds absurd. I don't think there's anybody out there that really thinks I'm going to get wealthy and then God will love me. 
so why did I say it? I'm saying it to point out that reconciliation with your creator is the single most important task that you could set yourself to. If heaven and hell are real, if God's love really does allow a human being to blossom into all of who we are and what we are, then the pursuit of money is inherently kind of silly now, isn't it? It doesn't make God love you. And Jesus has already loved you perfectly by dying on a cross to wash away your sins. If you want that forgiveness, he offers it to you right now today. That's why he's always talking about your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to belong to him fully. He doesn't want money to have your heart or any lesser thing. If you love Jesus, I want to say this to you. God has told us clearly, repeatedly to give to him first. When will we worship God instead of money? There's no text today that we touched on that was really that complicated. Brothers and sisters, we've got an obedience issue here, not an education issue. If we love Jesus, he is calling us every single day to take up our cross. That's the end of us, the death of us. And money is just one out of many things that we need to let go of. And say, God, what do you want with your money? God, my marriage is yours. What do you want with it? God, my relationship with my grandkids, that relationship is yours. What do you want with it? God, you had me get an apartment on this street to have these relationships with neighbors. What do you want to do with those relationships? Everything is his. That's what you signed up for when you decided to become a Christian. My job is to tell you the truth. And your job is to repent. So I'm not here today saying 10%. In fact, I think that might be cheap and easy to get off the hook. Whatever is generous in your own heart, if you feel it like, oh, if you write a check that's so small you don't feel it, it might not be generous yet. And if you write a check that's so big you can't afford to pay your rent, now you're dishonoring an agreement there is a middle zone that you're going to have to pray through. You're going to have to think through. There's this middle zone, and I cannot tell you what it is. But it's more than what the world would have you to believe. I'm going to pray for us, okay? Jesus, I'm convinced that in as much as our city and our state and our country really do love money, I'm convinced, Lord, that if you change our hearts, you can make our finances an apologetic to the world. God, make us a people that are completely marked by generosity to the stranger, to the foreigner, to the widow, to the orphan, to the incarcerated. Make us a peculiar people, God. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we ask for this. And God's people said, Amen.